Welcome to the EIM Global Podcast, the place where we speak to experts from across education, academia, and industry, so we can contribute to the professional conversations happening in our community now. The discussions we have and insights shared by guests help develop our own thinking and work, and hopefully spark further dialogue for other educators too, as they reflect on their practice and the students they work with. In this episode, we're speaking to Professor Dr. Stuart Keim, co-founder and director of Education for Evidence-Based Education, EBE. Stuart oversees the design and delivery of EBE's learning and development programs for teachers and leaders, and his work is concerned with helping educators understand and make appropriate use of the best available research evidence to promote learner outcomes. He is a qualified teacher of English and worked as a classroom teacher, middle leader and senior leader. Stuart studied for his doctorate with professors Rob Coe and Steve Higgins at Durham University. In 2014, he took on the role of policy fellow in the UK government's Department for Education. Stuart is currently visiting international professor in the Hector Research Institute for Education Sciences and Psychology at the Eberhard Karls University, Tübingen, a member of the editorial board of Impact and chair of governors at Ferry Hill Station Primary School in County Durham. In the episode, we unpack some of Stuart's views on educational data, hear about why waste is one reason he's motivated to work with schools and educators, gain some insight on how schools can select the right data points and why more data is not always better. He even shares a little Lewis Hamilton F1 analogy with us. So if you want to find out what that is all about, dive right into this episode now. Dr. Stuart Keim, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm well, thanks. Thanks for inviting me on. That's oh, a pleasure. Where whereabouts are you uh, talking to us from today? So right now I am I'm in the kitchen, uh, in my home, in Durham, in the northeast of England, and I'll, I'll give you a weather report as well. Overcast, light winds, and approximately 13 degrees. <laughs> just, just as I would have expected if I was to guess. It's, uh, <laughs> look, it's, yeah. it's, it's great to have you uh, on the podcast, and uh, obviously we're going we're gonna to get stuck into the, uh, the data and evidence conversation over the mm. next 20 minutes or so. But before we do that, uh, I'd just love to get a sense from you and, and for listeners perhaps that aren't familiar with your work and evidence-based education, you know, what, what's your professional journey been like thus far? How have you arrived at doing what you're doing now? And I suppose for anyone that's not familiar with EBE, you know, what is EBE, evidence-based education? Okay, well, uh, I'll, I'll work backwards from that. So EBE is um, a small organization that I co-founded back in 2015. And we are a, a teacher research development organization. Um, and basically, we try to help teachers get better at the stuff that they were trying to get better at before we came along. Um, we try and sort of supercharge it, speed it up, and give them access to the best available research evidence and feedback tools to help them be the best that they can. And I suppose if I roll back from that, then I can talk about how I got there. And I think uh, accident, fortune and good luck uh, probably play play huge parts in it. Um, And there's not an awful lot of intention, I think it's fair to say. Uh, I trained as a teacher at literally the start of this millennium. And I was uh, a secondary English teacher for um, 10 years, middle leader. I was a head head of English in secondary school and then became a senior leader. I became uh, what was called a director of studies, um, kind of an academic deputy head. Didn't really like that. Didn't think it was for me um, and had always had a bit of a problem with hearing people um, respond to my question, why do we do it like this? With the answer, because we've always done it like that. 
Uh, and I just thought that was a bit rubbish, really. And uh, there were things that really bugged me in education that I wanted to know more about. So I thought, well, I probably need to learn some more stuff. So I went back to university and I did my PhD with Rob Coe and Steve Higgins at Durham University. That blew my mind. And I learned lots and lots of new things. And it was really, really hard. And I had no idea what I'm doing uh, or what I was doing, rather. Um, naivety was definitely my friend, because if I'd knew how, uh, known how hard it would be, I wouldn't have done it. And then out of that, you know, I felt that I'd found a little bit of a gap where I discovered all this stuff about, you know, the uses of and, and, and potential in research evidence. Uh, but then it was really impenetrable, really hard to make sense of and what have you. And I thought maybe I could sort of sit in between some people that I knew, teachers and leaders, some research that I knew and try to connect the two together. And it all kind of came about as a result of that. And now I get the fun of working with teachers and leaders all around the world to try and help them be a little bit better today than they were yesterday. Brilliant. I've, I've got to ask, what were those things that, that were bugging you about education at the time that kind of made you think, I'm going I'm to go off and, uh, and learn a bit more about this stuff? Yeah, uh, so one of the things was um, the, the idea of student voice. And, you know, lots of people were kind of at the time going, oh, yeah, no, student voice really, really important. What, what do we do? You know, let's ask questions. Let's have focus groups. Let's have students on interview panels and let's do all, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, and I thought at the time, it's like, well, actually, you know, the the, the underpinning thing is right. You know, everybody uh, should be able to speak their real authentic voice and for that to be heard. But the ways in which it was happening just seemed really skewed. You know, these really kind of um, bad, you know, focus groups where basically student voice was about, you know, the bins are really full and the toilets are, uh, are not very clean. And I was thinking, hang on, students see more teaching than literally anybody else. And yet nobody ever asks them about the quality of teaching. Nobody ever tries to get feedback from them to help teachers to get better. And I thought, well, why don't we do that? And, you know, and lots of people say, well, it's really hard and, and things like that. So anyway, that's what I ended up doing in my PhD. I ended up seeing whether or not you could get feedback from students about their teachers' teaching and to see whether or not teachers would, you know, take that, find it acceptable. Would they do something with it? And in doing something with it, would that make any difference to the learning experience that those students had and their attainment and what have you? And that was my my entire PhD. Um, by the way, um, I, I've always thought of myself as a bit of a slow slow developer in, in many ways. This was a full-time PhD that I signed up for, full-time PhD that took me seven years uh, to finish. My, my excuse is that along the way, I, I had various other jobs uh, to try and pay my way and, and fund my studies. But um, yeah, it took me a bit of a while. But yeah, that was one of those things that really, you know, uh, bugged me. And then there was just, I, uh, the more I learned about research evidence, the more you know, I kept on thinking, why has nobody ever told me this? Like, why, you know, um, I remember having a conversation with Robert Bjork at UCLA, where he was telling me about decades of work uh, on memory and cognition, decades of work looking at, you know, the benefits of retrieval practice. And I was like, literally, I've been trained as a teacher in England. Uh, I was trained as a teacher at the University of Cambridge. Nobody has ever mentioned this to me. And, and I just thought, this is just wrong. You know, it's like, you know, so, something needs to, needs to change. So, you know, uh, it felt like I was kind of putting together this long list of things that really bugged me that I wanted to do something about. And, and I'd be really interested to just briefly, I suppose, hear you know, what, what did you find in terms of, you know, your, your PhD looking at students and, and feedback? Because it's something that, that I'm also very passionate about. And I'm fascinated by the fact that if you look 
I think in, broadly in the world beyond this idea of, of gathering feedback, gathering data, you know, whatever kind of language you want to use, it, it's something that you, we see all over the place now in all sorts of industries. Uh, and as you said, it, it's interesting that, that perhaps that's not as common in, in teaching as it, as it might be. So what, was that successful? What did you find? Well, I mean, I was successful because I got a PhD. So tick, that, that worked well. But um, so what did I find? I found that on, on the one hand... I found that you could ask questions of students that gave some useful and, and, and valid information to teachers about their teaching. So that was one thing. And also that those teachers who received their feedback, on, on the whole, actually, they were, they were quite nervous to see what they got, but they were really interested in it and recognised the value in it. And I think partly because, you know, we'd ended up constructing, you know, really kind of tight questions that really focused on aspects of their practice that they thought were important, that they thought that they could do something about, actually, if they found that, you know, that, that it, was, it was something that needed improving. The other bit that I was interested in was, does, it, does giving that feedback to teachers improve attainment? And, and in my study, I was looking at A-level results in particular. And basically, my kind of theory of change was present this feedback from students to their teachers about the quality of the teaching. Teacher then looks at that and goes, hmm, what could I do? Is there something I could change? Could I improve? And by improving what they're doing, by changing their teaching, does that have any kind of impact subsequently on students' attainment? So I did this sort of um, uh, randomised controlled trial um, study, and uh, what I found was that I couldn't detect any difference between my control group and my, my kind of um, uh, active trial group. And I think, you know, for, for lots of reasons now, I look back and I know, I know a little bit more about it than I did at the time, but literally my intervention was so light uh, as to be, you know, almost uh, probably unnoticeable um, in that, you know, it was literally giving this feedback to, to teachers on a piece of paper, having an hour long conversation with them and then going, what do you think you might do? And, you know, uh, one of the things that I learned from that is that, you know, the kinds of change that we that really wash through and make a difference to students, you know, have to be sustained over time. They've got to be, you know, really well embedded and and put in for the long haul. You can't just kind of flick a switch and magically expect, you know, uh, thing, things to change overnight, as pretty much any teacher or leader who's listening to this will know. Um, but at the time, you know, with my kind of blinkered view doing my PhD at the time, I was like, oh, I didn't find any effect here. Uh, that's, that's a shame. But thankfully, you can still get a PhD without actually finding an effect. So that's quite, quite nice. There, there you go. At, at least you took that away. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I got, I got the piece of paper. So, um, and and you know, and you'd have to fight, fight me to to wrest it from my my grubby little hands. I'm keeping that one, no matter well, what I it's, found. It's led you on to <laughs> to what you're doing today with with EBE. Yeah. So there you go. A good, a good yeah. step in that direction. I suppose that's an opportunity. And you've probably touched on a couple of things in in this area anyway but i mean specifically around you know data journeys i suppose within schools and i also have in mind here what you just said about the fact that you know the, these kinds of changes to be meaningful and have impact need to be sustainable you know and it's so often that we have a well, a, a dashboard conversation and of course you know that, that's great that's a piece of the puzzle but you know that, that's not itself going to get us too far so i'd just be really interested to hear you know what what motivates you what inspires you to work with educators and, and schools and, and leaders on that data journey piece yeah okay so what inspires me i'd say one of the things is just a i really abhor waste i just dislike waste um and particularly 
I can't stand wasting time and you know, and really like really precious resources, precious limited resources, and particularly, you know, I think in the context of education, you've got you know uh, people who come together for you know limited periods of time, and they bring with them a whole load of personal resources, right? So you know, people people going into a school today are taking in you know, um, the energy that they've got with them, the, their enthusiasm, the passion for their subject, the years of reading around it. And, you know, they're, they're bringing their personal resources into this professional context. And then basically the trade-off is, right, you know, we, you come here, you give us those those resources in return for something. You know, we'll pay you, we'll give you, you know, good conditions, we'll help you to grow and things like that. And I just think, you know, that those resources are often so hard won and so valuable that wasting them is just you know I just really dislike it so I kind of think then in terms of you know the work that I do and what inspires me is is about trying to avoid you know really really big costs um opportunity costs if you like that use those resources unwisely and ineffectively and I think the idea of opportunity cost is one of the things that really inspires me and this this you know the kind of basic idea that if you do one thing if you're if you're focusing your limited attention your limited working uh, memory capacity and whatever other resources you're bringing to the moment if you're focusing them on doing one thing you're not doing something else maybe lots of other things you're not you're not attending to so then i kind of think well you know on any given day where you've got teachers and leaders trying to do the best job that they can if by some you know accident or by design We've ended up with them doing things that are suboptimal, basically wasting those resources. Then that just really winds me up. And I think then um, I see it as part of my mission wherever I can to kind of just, you know, raise the conversation about these things, about, you know, like it's it's a, you know, uh, a live conversation each and every day about thinking where can I, you know, uh, make make the best use of the resources that I've got available either you know if I'm a leader thinking about my own resources but also other people and you know whatever else I've got or just you know literally each and every day in a classroom you know those those first you know five minutes at the start of each lesson what's really going on in in those first five minutes is it you know really good time where every student is right on it you know learning something thinking hard about things right from the get-go having a good, you know, strong relationship with the teacher? Or is it just, you know, kind of like slightly wasted time where people just drift in and it's kind of okay and we'll get going eventually? And so I think the thing that inspires me most, you know, everything that I do, whether I'm talking about, you know, data, whether I'm talking about, you know, uh, teacher's professional learning, whatever it might be, it's just um, I try to avoid, you know, wasting time. Fair enough. I think the same view, I suppose, can be taken from a student's perspective as well. Kind of, you know, that they're coming in with their own set of personal resources that day, yep. and again, trying to get the most from that time. But, but I'd love Absolutely. to hear from you, and just sort of sticking with the, the the data theme here, I suppose. Yeah. And maybe an example of what you're talking about in terms of that that wastage that sometimes occurs. Mm. What is, or how do you think of what educational data is or might be? Yeah. Okay. So. I kind of I try and think of it as as kind of components of something else that's really important, and the and the something else that is really important is information. And you know we're making decisions each and every day. You know pe- people in schools today will make important decisions based upon information, 
And that information will be kind of assembled. It's an aggregate of, um, of these bits of data coming together to help them form, you know, interpretations and conclusions and things like that. So I think of educational data then as these, these component parts. It might be, you know, let's say a attendance percentage, you know, how many times you actually got into school, uh, you know, on time. Or, and it might then also be something about, you know, health, your attainment, your, I don't know, whatever it is. But each of these little bits of the puzzle that then come together and are then, you know, presented, interpreted to draw out information. And crucially, you know, at the heart of the whole endeavor of, of education is a bunch of people making decisions. And, they, and those people might be the students themselves, it might be teachers, it might be leaders. Um, and, you know, and at the heart of it, then are these, these components, these, these data. And so they're really, you know, important to, I think, to think about in terms of the quality and relevance and usefulness of them, partly because of what I said before about wasting time, you know, and wasting resources. Because if you're, if, if, if what you're using, if it's not as accurate as it could be, if it's not as meaningful as it could be, if it doesn't really tap into something that's important to you, you know, as really relevant to the process of what you're trying to do to help support your students, to help them to be a bit better today than they were yesterday, then what's the point? And sometimes I think that we can end up in situations in education where we just have, you know, loads of data, just get all the data in there because more data, you know, that, you know, that, that seems to be equated with, you know, more is better. But then, you know, it's, it's kind of like, I don't know, think of it as the, you know, to use a, some kind of analogy from, you know, cookery, you know, like if the ingredients, you know, are not very good, then don't be surprised if the end product is not very good itself. And the end product here is going to be, you know, a decision. It's going to be an action. Uh, you know, maybe we want to say something to some people. Maybe we want to change a policy, change a practice, whatever it might be. Um, and the foundation that for that is information and the foundation of that information are the data that we've kind of brought together. So we have to think always about the quality of each bit and each bit of the process to make sure that we're not you know, um, wasting time, resources, opportunities, and what have you, chasing after things that aren't, you know, aren't real, going in the wrong direction. So that's, that's why, you know, I think that educational data are, are kind of important and worthwhile to think about. I do have lots of other views on, you know, on how people do really weird and spurious things with them, but that's maybe a different question. <laughs> so, sounds like a second podcast, perhaps. <laughs> but um, I, I think the picture you paint there or allude to of the sort of the overwhelming quantity of, of data uh, available to us I suppose probably probably in every walk of life now but obviously in, yeah. in you know, today's conversation in the education space I think that's so true and I think as a result of that the question then of how we sift through that you know kind of control for the noise I suppose within that data as it were even just the sort of initial selection of the data points we might be looking at is a challenge uh, for for schools and for educators so you know in your work with with EBE how do you advise schools to, to think about or start out identifying the right sorts of data for them uh, and as I said cut through the the overwhelming quantity okay so I mean I think there there are a couple of things that are sort of overarching ideas that are probably quite useful. One is the idea of just purpose and of being really, really clear on exactly, you know, what you're what you're trying to do educationally. What what are the decisions that you want to be able to make or the things that you need to know about in order to, you know, help students to, to get better. So for instance, you know, if you've got a curriculum, 
probably need to know how students are doing in those things that we've set out. If the curriculum is, the, is like, it's a journey, you know, and we set out like the first bit of the journey is this, then you need information on how they're doing in that, in that journey. So I think, you know, the purpose that you intend to, to fulfill should then be used to define, well, what information do you need in order to support that decision or whatever. And the other kind of overarching principle, I think, is... I know it's, it's kind of um, a sort of a just a just in time mentality. I sometimes think about um, I don't I don't really like watching Formula One, right? But I do like vehicles. We, we need to we need to end the podcast now, Stuart, because because I'm a big F1 fan. So. <laughs> well, anyway, we can move on. Imagine that you're right. Um, so let, let's take Lewis Hamilton, um, who is some is like literally probably the one F1 driver that I could name. Anyway. And you're Lewis Hamilton and you're doing this really complex thing where you're going really, really fast around around um, some track somewhere and you're trying to compete against other people who are also, you know, pretty, probably pretty much as good as you and it's all kind of marginal gains and things like that. And there's loads and loads and loads and loads of data that are collected in F1. I know that. But Lewis Hamilton, as he is racing around that track, does not require all of the data to be presented to him, either you know on a screen in front of him or in his headphones. He doesn't need to know uh, things about you know uh, like the exact tire pressures. He doesn't need to know the exact temperature of his engine. He doesn't need to know lots of things. But there are other things that he does need to know at that point. And so my overarching point is that not everybody needs to know everything all the time. Different people need different pieces of of data um, to you know to perform their role at a given time and that sometimes you know again using that like the my f1 analogy if you did give lewis hamilton all of those data the exact temperature of whatever it would be so overwhelming for him that he wouldn't be able to do the thing that he was there to do right he you know, um, you know, superb athlete and all the rest of him that he is. He has limited working memory, limited attention, you know, those things, just like anybody else. So if you overwhelm him, then he won't be able to do the thing that he's there to do as effectively as, as, as otherwise. Um, put that into a classroom context. Teaching is way more complex than driving a Formula One car. It's way harder and it's way more important. Um, so then adopt the same kind of principle. Well, what does that teacher need to know at any given time in order to do what they're there to do? Um, give them those things. Give them, a, you know, at the right time in the right way. Help them to, you know, understand and interpret and use in a timely fashion. And then everything else keep out of their way. Because I think we have to just acknowledge that, for instance, a school leader, you know, needs to be able to look across, you know, large data sets to see trends, to see, you know, those things. The, the needs of a, of a teacher are quite different. Um, yet in schools, we often have that, you know, that, that sort of mentality. We've got lots of stuff. Therefore, let's talk about all of it and, and what have you. And it's just super overwhelming, I think. Um, so that's definitely one of the things to you know, or, or two of the things that I would always try and bear in mind is one, what's the purpose that you're trying to achieve? And then kind of almost reverse engineer from that, you know, work back from that and say, well, what do, what do we need to know in order to make that decision? Then that gives you a, a kind of a good starting point for gathering data. Um, and the other is, you know, yes, you can collect it, uh, but, but then who needs it and when in order to do 
you know, a really important, useful part of their job in a timely fashion as effectively as they can. I love the uh, the F1 analogy. Cause I said about, I'm yeah, I literally fan, just made that up. There, I mean, I did prepare Gold. for this podcast a little bit, but that one was, that's... That's why we bring you on, Stuart. It's, it's for these kinds of uh, New to me nuggets. today, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think it works because if you... Without, without going too far down the Formula One rabbit hole. Um, Here we go. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the point you make about who needs what data holds okay, across the Formula One analogy and in, in schools, I think, because, and, and you touched on this a little bit, but you know, there, there, are, there are a bunch of different personas here, a bunch of different roles. Um, and what, what a teacher needs in a classroom at a particular point in time is different to what a, a teacher in a faculty conversation might need, you know, thinking about, yeah. you know, the, the year ahead or, or the year past. And likewise, you know, looking at whole cohorts and longitudinal analysis and so on, you know, for, for leaders at certain points in time, again, different sets. And if you look at what's happening in something like Formula One, you've got the, the exact parallel. What, what Lewis is getting fed is, of course, yeah. you know, a whole bunch of data in the background, but hopefully the right bits to him at that point in time. So I think that's yeah, that's a really interesting analogy. There you go. Thank you. Well, <laughs> thanks very much. And I would add to that that there's a whole load of stuff that you could collect about, you know, Formula One, you know, the, the, the performance of a Formula One car, which would be really interesting and completely irrelevant. You know, you could, you, I don't know, I, I mean, I'm desperately now trying to think of one of those pieces of data, but you could, I don't know, you could kind of um, collect data on, uh, on like the, the colors of cars and then, you know, uh, do some kind of, you could present a really nice chart about, you know, the kind of um, uh, incidents of, you know, a certain color of car um, placing in the top three in, you know, I don't know, whatever it might be. And, and, you know, it's like, okay, well, yes, you can do that, but does that have any re- relevance to the, the kinds of things that you're trying to do to get faster? You know, does it really matter whether you, you know, it's yellow or it's red? I'm, I'm, I'm really struggling to think that you know, that would make any kind of difference. Yes, you could collect data on it, but like, should you? No. And I think the same is true, you know, in education, we could collect data on just a thousand and one different things. You could collect data on students and teachers height. And, you know, does that have any bearing on, you know, mathematical ability? Uh, no, I think this is a nice segue uh, into, I guess, a, a conversation here about building an effective data culture within schools. Uh, and I think, you know, certainly myself, I, I've worked in in school environments where sometimes there wasn't uh, a positive view of data, and that's partly that's because of how that data had been used in the past. Sometimes it might be because, uh, to, to use you know your, your previous kind of point that data was being collected without really a clear idea of what the point of that was. And so that was taking up people's time back to the wastage idea that you had earlier on and so on. So, I mean, how do you advise or or think about building a positive data culture within the schools that you work with? I mean, I'd start by, by, again, with the idea of purpose, you know, why, why are we even talking about data in the first place? Like, you know, what let's have, you know, try and have an open conversation about it because quite often um, I find that, you know, you, you end up with people who have multiple varied experiences of data from you know, other schools, other contexts, you know, and so that can be really, you know, quite powerful in how they hear, you know, any kind of messages that might be new messages about data in, a, in our school or whatever the context, because I, as a teacher, I had some, you know, some pretty interesting and weird conversations with senior leaders about, you know, data that I really had no kind of control over and that were being interpreted really poorly, actually. And then, you know, and I was kind of being hauled over the coals over these things. Literally nobody in the room had a good understanding 
of the things that we were talking about, the data on, on the that were on the on the piece of paper in front of us. And so, you know, if we acknowledge that people have these kind of prior experiences that mean when they hear the words data or data culture or, you know, database decision making or anything like that, they're bringing with them a lot of things that perhaps we need to just open up and then clarify and say, well, yeah, this is what we mean. This is what we're trying to talk about. This is, you know, our approach and and an approach that is, you know, maybe as I've, I've talked about, is, is purposeful, is driven by our education purpose that says, you know, we have a curriculum, we have, you know, um, a, a kind of educational journey that we hope that our students experience. Basically, what we're trying to do is gather information that helps us to, you know, improve that, to intervene, to assure that or whatever it is that we're trying to do. So I think that's, you know, first thing is kind of have this, try and have an open conversation about what, you know, to clarify our terms, to clarify our aims and even developing this, you know, data culture. You know, the idea of a culture, you know, it, like that's, I mean, that's a pretty hard thing to pin down. Um, so I'm not going to try and come up with a definition of it, but I once heard somebody uh, talk about it as, you know, um, how we do things around here. And, you know, like if we take it like that, well, okay, so you've had all kinds of experiences maybe elsewhere or with you know previous initiatives this is how we are going to do things you know this is how we want to do things here and in some ways i think that then i try to approach it from the perspective that most teachers and most leaders actually joined the profession because they wanted to do a really good important and really hard thing which was to help people to learn stuff and get better at doing stuff so that they could live happy successful fulfilling lives you know, which is really easy to say and ridiculously difficult to do, and you know, a really complex job. But people are motivated, I think, in the main, in education, to do a good thing. If you can then kind of come alongside them and say, actually, if we can get this right, the information that we can generate here could, you know, supercharge what you're doing, could speed up what you're trying to do, could um, make it more efficient. You could probably get there a little bit quicker, maybe. You know, the interventions that you want to put in place if somebody, you know, comes to to our school and they don't have the required prior knowledge, if they haven't had a particular experience that's really important, if we can know about that, we can do something about it and we can, you know, resolve some of the issues that might, re you know, remain um, if, if we don't know about it. And so I think, you know, clarifying that, that's really important. But just describing it, just you know, telling people about it is just not enough, right? And I think one thing that I've learned from, you know, uh, a few years of working in this this weird space of trying to help people understand stuff about research evidence and things like that is that just telling people, just sharing stuff, just writing things and then putting it out there is not enough to support change. But then the this thing that strikes me, and this this you know, I'm, I'm not going to lay claim to any of what I'm about to say. I'm going to cite Rob Coe, my wonderful colleague. He, he put it like this, like, okay, so we know a lot, a lot about how people learn stuff, right? We know lots about, you know, the process of learning. And we've got schools that are generally, you know, fairly well optimized to support that process. But then we very rarely apply that understanding to the special case of teachers and leaders own professional learning. So the way that he thinks about it and the way that I now think about it, because basically I'm often guided and inspired by, by Rob and I've been very fortunate to learn a lot from him, is, well, if we know all these things about the learning process and, you know, teachers know how to help people learn how to do hard things, well, just do that. Just take what we know already 
and apply it to you know something new so if learning about data using data is is something new well we need to take the time to clarify what we're talking about to understand you know what prior knowledge of it people are bringing with them to explain clearly exactly what we're trying to do to model it to provide feedback on it to provide practice in it more feedback and so on and so on and out of that you know i think you stand a chance of people feeling more you know supported um, seeing more relevance in it and also you know out of that a kind of a sustained set of practices you know the how we do things around here is more likely to to last i think so in terms of building an effective data culture you know in, in the day-to-day i think we probably already know quite a lot about how to do that we just need to sort of turn around what we would ordinarily do with kids in a classroom to help them learn really hard things and to develop and then you know and use that there i think again rob years ago uh, he said to he said to me i think we were doing a podcast interview or something like that at the time and um again in my kitchen and he and we were talking about assessment and he said assessment is one of those things that you think you know about until you start learning about assessment and and i think in some ways this whole thing of you know data and what have you is is almost like there's an expectation that when you go and work in education you know everybody talks about data therefore you know don't be the person who doesn't know what data means or how to use it and things like that and i think we probably need to kind of roll back a little bit and recognize that there's probably some fairly kind of you know there's probably a curriculum in there somewhere of stuff that people need to know in order to to use this stuff in the way that we want them to and you know as as an example i'll give you an example of that like there's a thing in in kind of measurement theory uh called called uh, standard error of measurement which is a term that's kind of, you know, it's what I guess pretty widely understood and talked about in, in, you know, measurement circles and things like that. And, you know, and in measurement, I mean, kind of, you know, assessment to, to a certain extent. And I only really came across it probably like, I don't know, when I, when I was doing my PhD, I guess. And basically it's, you know, the idea of error, wiggle room, vagueness, imprecision, unreliability, all that kind of stuff in, in you know, in data. I was really used in my classroom teaching days to you know i'd give i'd give um, somebody 67 percent on an english essay and then somebody else would get 68 percent and then those two things would you know be written down in a mark book somewhere and then they would mean that one person did better than the other and as i look back at the process of generating those pieces of data those little bits of the puzzle actually that process could not support that kind of conclusion there's no way that i could have said yeah that's a 68 percent. that's better than a 67 percent. it's just falsehood it's lies it's nonsense and when you understand something like standard error of measurement when you see that kind of unreliability that vagueness that wiggle room that gray area and what have you i think one of the things it does is it tempers your vocabulary and the way that you talk about these things you don't then go oh definitely that one is number one that one's definitely number two you kind of go well they're all broadly the same we can't really separate them out just yet maybe we need to take other looks at things that have do more find out more if we wanted to to do that but if we don't need to separate them out if we don't need to have some kind of clear ranking clear category don't worry don't waste your time doing it because you don't need to do it and I think there's there's power then in creating that data culture and just, you know, upskilling people and people understanding more about, you know, data, about assessment, about the process of kind of measurement and, you know, uh, and, and really like understanding some of the fallibility of data. And, you know, and one, one of the things that Dylan William once said to me was this, he, was talking, he, he talked about, you know, embracing the unreliability of the data that we have. 
you know, and just you know, not trying to load onto it too much, you know, not making it do too much, not expecting too much of it, because it probably can't do all of those things. So be kind to your data. Maybe that's the the way. I think you you hit you hit there on uh, on the sort of I suppose it's data literacy point, isn't it? As much as data culture, and and that's one of the things exactly we're hoping to I think inspire conversations about uh, as a result yeah. of podcasts like this is just get people talking about it and pulling it apart and rather than thinking and students themselves actually thinking about their own data and what that means too I think it's, it's an important conversation but yeah. get, getting educators across our schools thinking about exactly that what is the wriggle room what is the reliability what what is you know the 67 versus the 68 based on yeah. and and in so doing that and having those conversations beginning to think about data a little differently i think taking ownership of that as opposed to data sometimes being done too you know and i'm thinking about the conversation you, you know you you referred back to in your own sort of teaching experience where you were being i suppose to some extent held accountable against some data that you know, the people in the room themselves having the conversation with you hadn't perhaps really unpacked yeah yeah like literally nobody in the room really understood what any of it meant and yet the consequences the interpretations were real you know they were like you know they were meaningful and and i walked out of that room you know feeling very very sad and worried that i was not a good teacher if you understand more about uh, how the sausage is made uh, that may it may be unpleasant uh, to to find out what you know some of the ingredients are but at least then you can you know perhaps improve some of the ingredients you can look for better quality ingredients as you i've just used a terrible metaphor there we've so gone from f1 to sausage yeah, yeah. making literally apologies to anybody who's sitting there going what was that why is he talking about sausages now as chewy to push the food analogy oh. a bit further uh, <laughs> as as it all is and i think that the you know, the importance, the meat of all this is, uh, <laughs> is <laughs> on a roll now, is, is very much in, in those conversations. But, you know, coming probably towards the end of our, our time here today, we can mm. probably have a second podcast uh, just on the F1 analogy, I think. But I love this idea and this, this very positive message, I think, of, of supercharging your purpose and, and the value that uh, you and EBE can and bring to schools and supporting that, but, but also that data uh, can you know, support when really thought about properly and, and again, helping to guide and potentially supercharge us towards the things that we are deciding are the right kinds of outcomes to work towards. So, Stuart, so, so much in this, you know, much more we could we could pull apart if we had time. And as I said, maybe we'll do another podcast at some point in the future. But for listeners today that uh, are interested in your work, uh, interested in continuing the conversation in some way, how can they get in touch with you and all colleagues at EBE? Well, uh, so um, electronically is, is definitely the best means. So um, our website is uh, it's just www.evidencebased.education and really can access pretty much anything that we've ever done through there. And you can contact us for, for support through there. And then the other ways are on Twitter. So EBE's Twitter handle is at evidence in edu, edu at the end there. And then I'm also on Twitter on um, at Prof Kime. Uh, so yeah, just and drop us a line through one of those media. And uh, we always love to talk. We always love to hear from people. And, and crucially, we love to engage in the debate. So, you know, we love talking about you know, assessment and data and all that kind of stuff. And like I said, you know, uh, we've, we've covered a whole load of ground today, but there are, you know, there's lots more that we could talk about in terms of, you know, the ways in which people, you know, can make good use out of data, the, the, some of the practices that seem to be, you know, less effective, some of the evidence around it. You know, there are some studies, you know, that have been done on how people use data and, you know, some surprising findings there, well worth looking into. But again, it's all part of what you said, Christian, about upskilling that, you know, people in their own data literacy, their own understanding of these things so that they themselves can make strong decisions for, for themselves and the learners that they serve. 
Stuart, it's been uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your wisdom and your insight. And uh, yeah, looking forward to, to continuing the conversation. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So that was Professor Dr. Stuart Kime, Director of Education for Evidence-Based Education. Thanks, Stuart, for joining us on the podcast and sharing some of your thoughts on how schools can make the most of their data. Don't forget, you can follow up with Stuart via the EBE website or on Twitter, linked in the show notes. Until our next episode, thank you again for listening and don't forget to follow or subscribe so you can stay in touch. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.